Morning. How's everybody? Good. I'm glad. So, uh, we're in Colossians. We're in chapter 3. If you have Bible or if you want to look at, we have Bibles in front of you there, ESV versions, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14 today. Now, let me read those as we begin. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here Paul continues to give practical instructions uh, to his readers, to believers, to the Colossians, to us. As we talked about last week, uh, these commands in the second half of his letter to the Colossians are based on the theological truths of the first half. Truths that included both Christ's supremacy and the believer's identity in Christ. Specifically, that our old self, if you're in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ... That your old self, our old self, died with Christ when Christ died for us. And we were raised with Christ to a new life. Really, this, uh, this application part, this instruction part is about this new life in Christ. Living this new life to its fullest. So based on who Christ is and who we are, Paul gives us a series of instructions that we might experience fullness in our new life with Christ. Does that sound good? That's something you're interested in? Are you interested in that? Okay. And over the last two weeks, we've looked at two basic commands. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, Paul instructed us to pursue what's above, to seek, to set our minds on the things of God, the kingdom of God, uh, on God Himself. Then second, beginning in verse 5, which we looked at last week, we were instructed to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And in verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Paul's told us that we have a new life in Christ. But to experience that new life, as God intends, we must pursue what's above and put to death what's below, what's earthly in us. Put to death, uh, when he says put to death, it's a metaphor for getting rid of the sin in your life. Uh, And and he uses put to death because it's at any cost. This is crucial. At any cost, get rid of the sin in your life. That was last week. Then beginning in verse 12, our passage for today, Paul continues to give instructions on living out, living our new life in Christ. Whereas last week the instructions were, in a sense, negative. At all costs, rid yourself, uh, your new life in Christ, of the residue of your old self. Now in verses 12 to 14, Paul turns uh, to more positive instructions. He again speaks metaphorically. 
by telling his readers to put on, or as the NIV puts it, to clothe yourself with. Paul's telling us how to dress, uh, what to wear, to clothe ourselves in the virtues of God, the character of God. So the basic instruction for today is to put on the garments of God. And we're going to look at this instruction by asking and hopefully answering three questions. They're in your notes. Uh, We have some fill-ins in the second one, but the, the questions are all there for you already. The first question is, who can put on God's garments? Who can put on God's garments? Now, the obvious answer is the Colossians. That's who he's writing to. And all believers, and that's correct. These instructions are for all who've trusted in Christ, all who are in Christ. But Paul goes out of his way to describe these believers. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So why does Paul include this threefold declaration of who he's calling to put on the garments of God? That's what follows. The garments are going to follow this. Well, I think it's because in the prior verses which we looked at last week, Paul said to put to death, to rid yourself of these old sinful habits, these things that are no longer part of you. And as we probably know, uh, this isn't always easy. Yes, there are some sins that God miraculously delivers us from. But then there are others, usually less obvious ones, sins that hang on as my friend Uh, Ken England used to say, like a hair in a biscuit. That was really funny, if you get it. Picture it. You got a biscuit with a hair in it. It's really hard to get it out, right? So as the Colossians are probably struggling to execute what is earthly in them, they're struggling to get the hair out of the biscuit, maybe they're even questioning whether they have this new life. You know, have you ever, you, you fall to some sin and you go, ah. Do I even have this new life? Am I even saved? Am I even a a believer? So Paul begins this new section with a reminder of who they, who we, if we've trusted in Christ, truly are. This is who you are, therefore you can, by God's power, not only kill the sin that's in you, but you can also put on His garments. Never forget, you are chosen by God, holy and beloved. And what's interesting is that each of uh, his three declarations of who they are, who we are, are also ways in which Israel was addressed in the Old Testament. As Paul said in verse 11, in the church there is no Greek or Jew. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile. And what was true of God's relationship with the Jews is now true for the Gentiles that trust in him. Israel was... God's beloved chosen people. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, we read, God speaking, it was not because uh, to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Here we see that Israel was both chosen by God and beloved by God. And Paul is saying that the Colossians and all Jews or Gentiles who trust in Christ are chosen by God and loved by God. I love that phrase, the Lord set his love on you and chose you. 
We are secure in his love, not because of who we are, not because of anything we've done, but because he first loved us and chose us. While we were yet sinners, Paul writes to the Romans, Christ died for us. And if we continue to struggle with sin, God does not reject us. While we were sinners, he died for us. If we struggle with sin, he doesn't reject us. For like Israel before us, we are holy. That is set apart for God. We are being, we are sanctified unto the Lord. Oh, for our good and for God's glory, he commands us to kill our sin. That was last week, we saw that. But even in, in times, even if we fail, God does not reject us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, he writes, Paul writes to the Romans. In the context of Colossians, Paul is saying that we are chosen to put on the garments of God. We can live out these virtues because we are God's chosen, holy, beloved people. So this threefold de declaration of who the Colossian uh, believers are was meant to encourage their, their Gentile hearts, their Greek hearts, and prepare them to put on God's garments. In a way, Paul is saying there is no Jew or Greek. All who are chosen by God are now holy and dearly loved. Therefore, you can press on. This is something you can do. You can not only execute the things that are earthly in you, but you can put on the garments of God. So uh, this applies to us. If we're in Christ, if we've trusted in Christ, we've been chosen by God, we're holy, we're beloved. We can not only kill the sin within us, but we can put on these garments. So what are God's garments? That's our second point. Well, Paul gives us eight, uh, I'm going to call them virtues, garments, to put on. And I'm going to try to give a brief summary of each one, a couple a little longer. My goal is not to explain everything there is to know about each of these garments. That would mean at least eight sermons. Uh, but I do want us to understand what these garments look like, what it feels like to put them on, what it looks like to wear them. So the first garment of God, Paul says, is compassion. Put on compassionate hearts. The King James Version translate this, translates this more literally. Uh, bowels of mercies. What do you guys think about that? Bowels of mercies. Because the Greek words literally refer to the stomach or the entrails where so much of the emotion is felt. You know, when you get emotion, your stomach sort of stirs up. We'll talk more about this in our third point, but I want us to begin by seeing that Paul is calling not just for acts of compassion, but for feelings of compassion. However, those who have a compassionate heart will act. They will care for others because they have empathy. They identify with and help others in need. They, as Paul instructs in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is what we're called to, every one of us. All of us must put on uh, compassionate hearts. This is the first garment. And the second is kindness. Put on kindness. Kindness or goodness involves doing good for others, even when it may not be deserved. 
Archbishop Trench, the main person behind the Oxford English Dictionary, says that the Greek word here translated kindness is a lovely word for a lovely quality. It was used to describe wine which had grown mellow with age and has lost its harshness. It was used by Jesus when he said, my yoke is easy, same word, kind. My yoke is kind, my yoke is good, and my burden is light. Jesus says when you are yoked to him, you will, your experience will be easy. Have you guys all experienced that? Everything's easy. Not that you won't have difficulties in life, but in those difficulties, you'll experience uh, the kindness of the Lord. Jesus won't be harsh to you. He says, I'll be gentle. I'll kindly lead you through the difficulties of life. Also, Paul tells us that kindness, like several of others of these garments, as we'll see, is a fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, which we'll get to, joy, peace, patience, which is one of these garments, and kindness, goodness, faithfulness. For those who are filled with the Spirit of God, they will be filled with kindness. So Paul tells us that we are to put on kindness. We're to be good, helpful, not harsh, but mellow in our words and deeds and our thoughts even. This is the second garment. And the third is humility. Put on humility. Humility or, or, or lowliness in the Greek means to have a humble opinion of oneself. To not think more highly of yourself than you ought. It literally means lowliness of mind. We see this exemplified again in Christ. In Philippians 2.8, Paul writes, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not claim his rights as God, but instead became a man. He humbled, he lowered himself, he submitted to the will of his Father, and went to the cross for you and me. Jesus also invited his followers to learn from him because of his humility. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, he says, Take my yoke upon you. Again, come and, and go with me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, Jesus wasn't saying, wasn't suggesting that his lowliness meant he was below others. And he or Paul is not teaching us as followers of Christ to think poorly of ourselves. Oh, I'm nothing but a, a worm, which may be true, actually, but that's not the point. Rather, they are teaching the necessity of the absence of self-exaltation. Not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. To see yourself in perspective. Can you do that? Can you step back and... This is who I am. Humility is the natural outflow of the person who knows who God is. Uh, the more you know of God, the more humbler, the more humble you'll be. They know who God is, and in that they know who He, they know who they are. When you know how great God is, you can't help but being humbled before Him. So humility is the third garment every believer is to put on. And fourth is meekness or gentleness. Put, put, on, put on meekness. Meekness is not often seen as a virtue uh, by the world. 
In, in his commentary on Colossians, Pastor Kent Hughes provides this illustration. Some time ago, humorist J. Upton Dick, Dixon said he was writing a book titled Cower Power. And that he had, found, he had also founded a group for submissive people called doormats. His motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. Their symbol is the yellow traffic light. Hughes comments, Mr. Dickerson has a clever sense of humor, but his misconception is no laughing matter. Stop laughing, everybody. Okay. For most people think that meekness, gentleness is weakness. However, nothing could be further from the truth. There is gentleness and self-effacement and humility in this idea of meekness. But behind the gentleness is uh, strength like steel. Steel like strength. Because the supreme characteristic of the meek is that they are under perfect control. Some have said meekness is strength under control. We see this in the life of Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, we read, Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. That's pretty, you know, he's the meekest guy. But if you know anything about Moses, if you've read the story, seen the movie, you know he was a man who could act decisively, powerfully, fearlessly even. He stood before Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptian empire, maybe the most powerful empire of that day and both threatened him with plagues from God and commanded him to let my people go. So our fourth garment, meekness, speaks of one who has great strength or power, but only exercises it under the direction of God. And fifth is patience. Put on patience. Patience may include uh, having to wait in the car while your wife still, is still getting ready. Although this morning... My wife was waiting in the car while I was getting ready, so. But really, patience or long-suffering involves perseverance through difficulty. And it's more than just enduring difficulties or being resigned to your circumstances. Oh, woe is me. I guess there's nothing I can do, so I'll just be patient and endure it. Instead, biblical patience is based on faith in God. With patience which is also a fruit of the Spirit, you can endure hardship because you know God is sovereign and God loves you. God is all-powerful and God wants what's best for you. Also, patience is to be exercised toward everyone. As Paul instructs us in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So as others cause you hardship, Paul says, put on the first garment of patience. And sixth, the related garment of forbearance. Part of patience is bearing with one another. Put simply, this means to put up with one another, to endure, to forbear, to suffer one another. And with all of our diverse opinions and idiosyncrasies and sins, this is certainly not an easy task even or especially in the church. We say we love, we forgive, but we can't really put up with one another. As someone once wrote, to live above with the saints we love, oh, what will be, that will be glory, but to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. 
However, regardless of our many flaws, the church is a place where people must bear with one another. We must understand and believe what Paul said in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is a great promise, and we'd like to claim it for ourselves, right? God is at work in me. God is at work in my life. And one day, I will be complete and perfect in his presence. But it also makes clear that each of us is a work in progress. We're in progress. Ultimately, each one of us will be a masterpiece of God. Though it may be difficult to see right now, we are not yet what we're going to be. And we need to put on the sixth garment of forbearance with each other as each of us goes through this process. And the seventh garment is forgiveness. Spend a little more time here. Paul spends a little more time explaining it. Inevitably, mutual forbearing must extend to mutual forgiving. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, mu- so you also must forgive. Okay, pretty big, right? So much so that Paul doesn't just tell us to put it on, he tells us why we're to put it on. To forgive means to pardon, to not hold something against another, to let go of hatred and resentment. Now let me say first off that forgiveness is, a, is kind of a difficult subject. It's, it's touchy, especially, uh, well, when we talk about human relationship. Uh, must I forgive those who don't ask for forgiveness or, re- or, re- or repent for what they've done? What about those I forgive, but, but do the same, they do the same thing over and over again? How many times must I forgive? Really? 70 times 7? That's a lot. Does forgiveness mean forgetting and trusting again? Speaking about this topic to someone who was lied to, had a promise broken, C.S. Lewis wrote, that, the, the broken promise, the lie, is precisely what you have to forgive. This doesn't mean that you must necessarily believe his next promise. It does mean that you must make every effort to kill every taste of resentment in your own heart, every wish to humiliate or hurt him or pay him out. So along with forgiveness, uh, we must have some wisdom, right? We must exercise wisdom, how we relate to the one who has wronged us. But we must also forgive, but we, we, uh, going a little fast, got to slow down. We must always forgive, though. We must make every effort to kill every taste of resentment in our hearts. As Paul instructs, our forgiveness of others is not an independent affair. It comes in response to and is commanded because of God's forgiveness of us. And because of that, it can be powerful. It can go far beyond what any human would expect. Christian forgiveness can be humanly impossible and unbelievable. This is illustrated by Christian minister, civil rights activist, John Perkins. In his book, Let Justice Roll Down, he tells how he was beaten in a Mississippi jail, being repeatedly kicked and stomped as he lay in a fetal position of protection. The beating went on and on as he writhed in a pool of his own blood, while inebriated officers took turns using their feet and blackjacks. 
At one point, an officer took an unloaded pistol, put it to Perkins' head, and pulled the trigger. Then another bigger man beat him until he was unconscious. As the night wore on, it got worse. During a conscious period, one officer pushed a fork down his throat. It was barbarous torture, a great reason to hate. But this is what uh, happened, as Perkins tells it. The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. And imagine an image formed in my mind, the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached. Yet he was arrested and falsely accused like me. He went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed, killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying. But when he looked at the mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them, and he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they don't know what they're doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. It's profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. Oh, that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true for me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's not enough to put up with it. It's not enough to just put up with each other. To refuse retaliation, we must truly forgive. And if we struggle with this, we must, as did John Perkins, recall the immense forgiveness of Christ. So put on the seventh garment, forgiveness. And finally, put on love. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I think the picture here is one of getting dressed in, a, in these godly garments. Then it occurs to the, the person getting dressed that as beautiful and fine as these garments are, they can never be held in place without a belt. So he added the binding belt of love. It's possible to have some of these garments and not love, but it's impossible to have love and not have all these garments. Love is sort of the encapsulation of all of what we've talked about. In his commentary on Colossians, F.F. Bruce says, love is the grace that binds all these other graces together. But what is love? What is the love that Paul's talking about? Well, in the Greek, here in Colossians, it's that familiar word, the Greek word that most Christians are familiar with, agape. We think of it as, as God's kind of love, God's unconditional love, but that's not what the way the Greeks thought of it. I, I want to stop here and just say with all of these words, I haven't done it with each one of them, but with practically all of these virtues, uh, the, the Christianity, as we'll see here with love, had to redefine them. 
They were not what, the, the Greeks did not uh, think of themselves as humble people, as meek people, as patient people. They didn't think of those things as virtues. And so the church, Paul in his epistles, others had to redefine things. And that's what happened with love. Agape, love, seems to have been virtually a Christian invention. The word agape existed in the New Test it existed before the New Testament, but the New Testament gave it new meaning. New meaning for a new thing. According to the Dictionary of New Testament Theology, agape prior to the New Testament is quite often colorless as a word, appearing frequently as an alternative to or synonym with eros, romantic love, and phileo, brotherly or friendship love. It meant to be fond of, to treat respectfully, or to be pleased with. It's New Testament, it's the New Testament writers that filled the Greek word agape with meaning. Paul seems to be doing that in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Prior to the New Testament, the word agape didn't necessarily mean these things. But now agape has a new meaning. In Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians, we see some, if not all, of the garments were to put on. They're wrapped up and bound together as we put on love. Okay. So Paul has declared who can put on God's garments. God's chosen, holy ones, beloved. And I've tried to summarize the meaning of each of these garments. Now we turn to the most crucial question. How do we put on God's garments? They're nice to talk about, but how do we wear them? Paul doesn't specifically tell us here how we're to do this, but he, he, he just says, instructs, commands, put on then, and then he gives the garments. Now before we talk about what that means, how we do that, how we put on these garments, I want to make sure we understand what we're talking about. As I defined and illustrated each garment, there are certain actions associated with, with them, right? For example, compassion helps the needy, gives to the poor. Kindness is not harsh. It has a pleasant word, a, a kind deed for everyone. Humility and meekness do not claim their rights, but serve others. Patience and forbearance put up with difficult people, hard situations, without complaining. Forgiveness does not hold the wrongs of others against them. And love shows all these characteristics. Love does all these things. So again, these garments are associated with certain actions, certain ways of living. But I want us to understand, get this, the actions are not the garments. The actions are not the garments. Instead, the actions flow from the garments. For example, you might, I might, give to the needy. Not out of compassion, but out of pride. So others might think more highly of, of me. Same action, giving, different motive. No compassion, no humility, 
Or, or Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The point is, you can make incredible sacrifices. You can do things that look like love, but are not. Because love, or any of these garments, is not an external action. Yes, they do, they must, they will result in external actions, but by calling us to put on these garments, God is calling us uh, to be these kind of people. These garments are to become internal parts of who we are in Christ. They're to become part of our new life in Christ. Not just a thing, uh, not just a list of things we do. Paul's not instructing us to engage in random acts of kindness. The goal of these garments is that our natural, purposeful response from our heart and our mind to people in this world is compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. Does that make sense? The distinction there between the, the actions, the external actions, and then the internal heart. Because I want us to understand that God is not calling us to be great actors and actresses. To simply do acts of compassion and kindness and humility. To act as if these, we are these kinds of people. While all the, when all the while, uh, our heart has no inclination to do such things. If that's the case, then you're just putting on a show. You're just acting. God wants these garments to become part of your heart. Your heart for the people in your world, in your church, your neighbors, the people around you. And so when we ask the question, how do we put on these garments of God? The answer is not simply, uh, just do it. Don't think about it. Just be kind. Just be compassionate. Just make a list of actions uh, that demonstrate these garments. Just act in these ways regardless of how you feel or who you are. That's not it. I know that would be easy if I just said to you, okay, out, okay uh, here's this list of stuff. Now, which one do you really struggle with? Uh, write that down and now uh, think of a way to do it. Go be kind to someone. That's, that's okay if you want to do that, but that's not the point. You could be kind to somebody, you could think of a kind action, and it has nothing to do with your internal heart. You're just, I'm going to do what the pastor said today, which would be nice if you did that. So uh, with that understanding that Paul is not calling us just to do something, he's calling us to be someone, so now we can turn to the question. How do we put on the garments of God? How do we be these kinds of people? Because it's much easier to do these kinds of actions than to be these kinds of people, just so you know. Well, first, what does it mean to put on? This putting on uh, contrasts with what we saw last week regarding what is earthly in you, uh, in us, our sin, our flesh, our residue of our old self. We are to put it to death, to put it away, to put it off. And in contrast to that, Paul tells us what we're to put on. As believers, we're not just to kill sin, we're to live as new creatures in Christ. 
And to put on literally means to clothe, to be clothed with. Notice that Paul doesn't just say, be compassionate, be kind, be humble, etc. This again might imply just doing actions. He says, put on, clothe yourself with. This implies making these virtues part of who you are. We, by the power of God's Spirit, given to those who have a new life in Christ, are to take the garments of God and clothe ourselves with them. We're to embrace them. We're to wear them wherever we go. This is how we're to dress for living our new lives in Christ. Or, this is who we're to be as we live our new lives in Christ. But I still don't think I've told you how to do that, have I? How do we become who God instructs us to be? Well, I think there are two aspects that are found in our text. The first relates to our first point this morning. Who can put on the garments of God? We must, uh, by faith, realize, reckon, believe, trust that who we are in Christ is in fact someone who can put on these garments. That we can be these kind of people. As we went through the list of the the virtues, the garments of God, maybe you thought, oh, uh, some of these are okay, but not that one. I'm just not gifted in that area. I'm really not a compassionate person. Isn't, isn't that for uh, uh, others? You know, and I, I really struggle. You know, there's something in me, uh, OCD, BC, I don't know, that causes me to be impatient. I've been diagnosed, okay? Humility and meekness are, are just not my cup of tea, you know? Forgiveness, like, like that demonstrated by John Perkins and Jesus, could never, I could never do that. And I can, cert, I can certainly love some people, but, but I really struggle to love others. Well, uh, if that sounds like you, if you have any of those thoughts, welcome to the club. But Paul wants you to know something and believe something. You can be transformed. Notice the then. Put on then. Sometimes just a little word makes is so important. The then points back to what Paul said in verse 11. Let's just take the very last words. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then, but Christ is all and in all. Put on. If Christ is not all and in all, he can't say put on anything because you can't do it. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, the command to put on these garments is surrounded by truths regarding who you are in Christ. So I think Paul is saying to put on the garments of God, you need to get your mind straight. We need to see and believe and trust who we are in Christ. We need to believe that this is for us. This is for you. We put on these garments by faith based on who we are in Christ. Do you trust that Christ is all, including all of you? Do you trust that Christ is in all, including in you? Do you trust that you are a new creature in Christ, that the old has passed away, that the new has come? Do you trust that that God, from the foundations of the earth, from a past, before Creation even chose you. 
Do you trust you're holy, that God has set you apart for Himself? Do you trust that you're beloved by God, that God loves... Okay, for God so loved the world, that's great. But do you trust He loves you? Do you trust that Christ has done and is continuing to do a work in your life? Do you trust that Christ is transforming you into His image? If you believe these truths that Paul presents, then you can resolve in your mind, in your heart, that you can put on the garments of God. This can be you. No matter who you are or what you have done in the past, you can, because of who God declares you to be in Christ Jesus, you can have the character of Christ. Believe it. So first you must trust the power of God, of course, and trust who you are in Christ, what God is doing in you. And then second, again by faith, you have to make a decision. You have to decide to put on, this is, a, this is an instruction. There's something to do here. Like putting to death, putting on is also an act of the will. Prior to coming to Christ, this is crucial, based on what we've just said, number one, you can obey this command. Prior to coming to Christ, we had no willpower to put to death the earthly or to put on the virtues of God. The, the kind of garments we've discussed would be impossible for us to wear. We could pretend we could do some rant. I could pay for the guy's Starbucks behind me, right? Oh, I'm so kind. You know, we could do stuff, but we would never be that kind of person. When the rubber hit the road, we'd be selfish. It would be out for us. But in Christ, we now can both put off the sinful and put on the virtues of God. But we must choose to put these virtues on. We must choose to become these kinds of people. We must do what it takes, just like we must do what it takes to kill the sin on us, we must do what it takes to put on these garments. And what does it take? How do we do that? Well, let me give you one final verse that I think answers this question. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul speaking to the church. He writes, And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I think understanding this verse is crucial in putting on the garments of God. And I think we, uh, uh, well, I don't think, I wish, I wish we had more time to spend on it. What do we got here? I got five minutes, okay. The gist of what Paul is saying is that because of Christ's finished work on the cross, there's no barrier between us and the Lord. Do you realize there's nothing between you and God? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. The curtain was torn between the, where God resided, the Holy of Holies. When Christ was crucified, the curtain was torn top to bottom. We have unveiled faces. Our curtain, what separates us between, uh, what, what separated us from God is no longer there. Our sin has been taken care of by Christ. 
You are in Christ. You are God's chosen, holy, beloved people. Therefore, we can behold. We can fix our gaze upon the glory of the... That's it right there. We can fix our gaze on the glory of the Lord. That's how you put on these garments. We can fix our gaze on the glory of the Lord. Because it's beholding God's glory that causes us to be transformed into the same image. That is the image of God, the image of Christ. Now there's some mystery here, right? Fixing your eyes, being transformed. There's a work of God going on, but your part, my part, is fixing our eyes on God, on His glory. When we behold the glory of God, when we enter into relationship with Him, when we enter into fellowship with Him, when we draw near to Him, when we spend time learning of Him, seeing His glory, that's when transformation takes place. Now, the transformation is not instantaneous. It's from one degree of glory to another. As we spend time in God's presence, we enter into a process of transformation, of becoming holy, of uh, what is often called sanctification. In this process, we become more like Christ. Or put in the context of Colossians, we put on His garments. Uh, We dress like Jesus. We become more compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forbearing, loving people. So, so uh, it's really a test, right? I mean, uh, if you want to test yourself, you, you encounter a situation, do you react with compassion or indifference? You know, you have an opportunity to, uh, to say something great about yourself, and instead you're humble. You know, things aren't going well, you're facing a hard situation, and you just start complaining? Or are you patient? And, and we could go on. If these don't uh, represent you, and again, I'm not talking perfection. I'm talking one degree of glory to another. You're growing in your humility, in your meekness, in your forbearing, in your forgiveness, in your love. If you're not then I would say you haven't been gazing at Jesus. You haven't been looking at Him. You've been looking at something else. Because when you gaze at the Lord, you become more like Him. Jesus was the perfect example of each and every one of these. And so when we gaze at Him, these virtues come to us. How does that take place? Well, it's not us. It's not me. Paul says, from this come, For this comes from the Lord who is spirit, through a work of the spirit in our lives. We have our part, though. We have to gaze, and then the spirit does the work. It's no coincidence that several of the garments are also uh, fruit of the spirit. It's the Spirit of God working in us, filling us, giving us fruit that in, and enables us to put these garments of God on, or, or in, in fact, put them on for us as we gaze at the Lord. So bottom line, we put on the garments of God by faith, by believing who we are in Christ, 
that we are God's chosen, holy, beloved children. And by beholding the glory of the Lord, by spending time looking at God, looking at Jesus in God's Word, in prayer, in worship, basically, uh, no big surprise here, if you've been here very long, if you've read your Bible very often, we put on the garments of God in the same way we pursue what's above, we seek and set our minds on the things above by engaging in spiritual disciplines, the things we talked about a few weeks ago. That's our part. That's what takes us into God's presence. That's what helps us fixate, gaze upon Him. And when we do that, when we engage in these disciplines that draw us closer to God, we see His glory. And this uh, new sight, this greater understanding of who God is, seeing His greatness and the glory is what the Spirit uses as you're gazing at God, as you're saying, oh my, what great, amazing love and forgiveness He has. The Spirit works that in you. Transform you, transform you into a more loving, forgiving person. Transforming us into fully clothed people of God. If that's what you want, I mean, you may not. You may just want to keep doing what you're doing, being who you are. You know, I, I don't really want to be humble. I don't know what to say to that. Knock it off, maybe. But if this is what you want, if you want these garments, if you want to be more like Christ, not forgetting that Christ was crucified for being like Christ, if you want to put to death the earthly and put on the garments of God, then you have to start gazing at Him, fixing your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And we do that through His Word, through prayer, through worship, I think even through fellowship, through so many things. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for today. I thank You for Your Word the blessing it is. Lord, and I pray for myself. I pray for each of us here. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, you would draw us to yourself. You would convict us of our need to fix our eyes upon you, to see you, to see your glory. And that we would do that. We would do that in your word. We would do that in prayer. We would do that in worship. We would do that in service to you, Father. And, and as we do, as we step out in faith, knowing who we are in Christ, that your spirit would work and that we put on these garments and that we become more like Jesus day by day. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we uh, close out with a song here, I invite you to stand with me one last time if you'd love to.